0: You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social, and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofEurope.org. So, we're talking about women and their role in the new humanitarian agenda. Now, in this troubled world that we live in, uh, humanitarian crises and emergencies have unfortunately become a fact of our lives. Uh, They are frequent, they are long, and they are very, very painful, these humanitarian crises. Some are man-made, the result of man's work against man, like the war in Syria. And some are natural disasters, sudden earthquakes and tsunamis, but also slow-moving disasters like climate change. And these are putting pressure on migration flows, and these are also destabilizing the region, creating havoc in the region, but also impacting on us here in Europe. Now, often when we talk about women and the new humanitarian agenda, we tend to think about women as victims. And, of course, yes, they are. And we have to pay attention to gender-based violence, and we have to make sure that there are safe places for women in emergencies. Uh, There is importance to be paid to these issues, and the Istanbul conference held last year in June did recognize that women have to be protected, that humanitarian aid has to be gender-sensitive, if you like. But that's not the entire story. That's not the full story and we know it. Women are also front-line When it comes to dealing with crisis, they're the ones who are often at the front when it comes to building resilience, uh, creating consultations, and dealing with the impact of humanitarian crisis uh, on their societies and across their countries. Uh, Which is why this issue, this question that we're talking about today, is going to be multifaceted. Uh, If we're going to actually turn the agenda for humanity into action, we need to have more women involved. I'm Shada Islam. I'm Director for Europe and Geopolitics uh, at Friends of Europe. This discussion is part of our Development Policy Forum, and this time around I have to say we're really, really grateful to our partners, JICA for uh, ensuring this Tanaka-san is here. I'll introduce her in a moment, but also to ensure that our friends from Syria have uh, managed to come here. Let me introduce our panel. Monique Paria is European Commission Director General for Humanitarian Aid and Civil Protection. Monique, thank you very much for coming. Ula Ramadan, Ula, just nod your head. Ula Ramadan is a Syrian human rights activist and executive director of the Badael Foundation. This is an organization working on empowering and supporting Syrian civil society activists in peace building. Daniel Seymour is uh, the only man on the panel, uh, but he represents UN Women here, so this is absolutely fantastic. He's coordinator and deputy director of programs at UN Women. Marcel Chevaro. Marcel is executive manager of Kesh Malik and an activist and a blogger from Aleppo. She's really working a lot on education at the local level in uh, in Syria. Also on our panel is Tanaka-san, Yumiko Tanaka. Uh, She is Senior Advisor for Gender and Development at the Japan International Cooperation Agency and a cherished partner of our DPF. Uh, One of our panelists... uh from the IKEA Foundation, who was going to come here because you know that private sector organizations are very closely involved in the post-Istanbul agenda for humanity, humanitarian aid. But she's been, uh, unfortunately, she was driving down from the Netherlands, and there was an accident right in front of her, so she's been caught up in traffic. She won't be able to make it, but we'll make sure she comes to some of our other events. So I'm going to kick off with you, Daniel. Not just because you're the man here, but because you're here from the UN Women. Um, since the Istanbul Conference last year in in, in June, um, what progress has been made in actually bringing women to the centre of the humanitarian debate?
1: Thank you very much. Um, just so, it's, it's always, I mean, I, I've been working for you and women a little while and, and then UNICEF before, so I'm used to being uh, in, a, in a minority of men. But I do just want to say, I think on this agenda, which is important for all the reasons you've mentioned, one of the prerequisites for making progress is that we do need to actually bring sort of more men into the discussion. Your Women's he for she campaign is really about that. Um, and I've been generally, as we have these various meetings and discussions that I take part in on women and humanitarian action, I've been quite pleased to see more men in the room taking an interest in this subject, and it shouldn't just be a subject that is of interest to women. Um, So there's a few uh, here today, hopefully more the next time we have this discussion here in in Brussels. Um, I think the, the, the first time I can remember actually formally celebrating International Women's Day, and it's so, you know, so nice to be here uh, on this day, uh, was almost 20 years ago in a place called Jakova, uh, mm-hmm. on the border between Albania and, and, and Kosovo after the war when I was working with the OSCE. Um, and I remember there, in that OSCE mission in Kosovo, which, you know, that, that very difficult situation after, after the war, um, that, that talking about mainstreaming gender equality and women's issues into the response, the humanitarian action, the rebuilding and reconstruction afterwards... Um, was seen as a little bit of a fringe interest. Uh, uh, We had an advisor in the mission, um, and we would try to have little, nice little activities around around women's issues and so on. But really the the concept of mainstreaming it through the mission, making it integral to the whole way the mission understood its work, um, was really very, very far from from where we were. And I think we have to recognize we've come an enormously long way uh, since then. And the World Humanitarian Summit, as, as, as as you referenced, was a good uh, sign of that. You know, we had um, seven roundtables at the World Humanitarian Summit. Roundtable seven, which, unfortunately, was roundtable seven, the last one, uh, in in the slot that competed with Mm -hmm. the Grand Bargain uh, meeting, which I want to talk about a little bit uh, as well. um, We still had the the, the, uh, incredible turnout, very high level, uh, lots of heads of state turnout. Um, and around about 500 commitments made in that round table. Um, And and the the commitments were focused around five areas, and I just want to remind colleagues of that. One was about empowering women and girls as change agents around leadership. Uh, One was around access to sexual and reproductive health and rights. Um, One was around gender-based violence. Um, One was around uh, gender-responsive humanitarian action. And one was about compliance with norms and standards. So those are the, sort of the areas that we crystallized around. Um, and, you know, and, the, and the event was great. But, but I do want to say, you know, if I'm honest, you know, that euphoria that we had, or not, not euphoria, but that, that positivity we felt <coughs> coming out of Istanbul, um, you know, we have to be reminded that actually um, you have to work. You know, these, the, 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 we seem to have a problem, you know, that recognition of gender equality is really not sticky somehow. you know, We have these meetings, we have these discussions, we make these commitments, but if we don't keep fighting, we don't keep working, we don't keep putting in our energy, uh, it seems to fade away. Um, and that, in a way, I think is a little bit what we've seen with some of these World Humanitarian Summit commitments and, and attention to them. So we do have to keep working on that. And I want to give just one example. is around the grand bargain. And... and you know, The Grand Bargain, for those that aren't familiar, was a connected uh, but distinct process within the context of the World Humanitarian Summit, focusing on the work of donors, international <laughs> organizations, uh, in, in providing uh, humanitarian assistance. And at the precise moment that we were sitting in Istanbul in Round Table 7, talking about gender equality, at that exact moment, the Grand Bargain was being agreed an a blind agreement. The Grand Bargain agreement contains nothing at all on gender equality. So I think I, I give that as an example of, you know, what we, what we need to do there. Now, at the Grand Bargain meeting in Bonn, which really sort of kick-started it, um, we were able to convene a, an informal group of friends on gender equality in the Grand Bargain. Uh, we're very pleased that ECHO is part of that, uh, that group, along with the U.S., Australia, Canada, Sweden, uh, Finland, um, the Red Cross and others. You know, it's, it's, it's a group, and we're trying to make sure through the Grand Bargain um, we're pushing this issue and keeping the, the attention on it. And here, I think, is one of the ways we're trying to follow up on those World Humanitarian Summit commitments. Maybe I'd like to, to, to highlight three headline things in, in that, in the workstream of the Grand Bargain, and maybe in the, in the discussion people will, will want to talk a little bit more about that. But very, very practically, three things, uh, I think, priorities as we try to figure out how we engender uh, humanitarian action. The first is around uh, needs assessments. This is the Workstream of the Grand Bargain. It is a reality It's a sad reality that, um, certainly since I've been in this position, whenever there's been a sudden onset emergency, um, if UN Women has not provided technical support to engender the common needs assessment for the humanitarian response, it hasn't got done. The uh, post-disaster needs assessment after the Nepal earthquake in 2015 was the first ever to have a dedicated gender chapter. You know, we we really need to do much, much better on making sure that we build gender into our understanding uh, of a crisis. Um, so that's one, one work stream. The second uh, is around cash. You know, there's an increasing tendency to give people money rather than things. And mm-hmm. there's lots of really, really good arguments for it. But cash can be delivered in a way... and, and people are talking about making cash 50% of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the assistance that's given. But, but, but we need... To, there are different ways that cash can be given, and cash can work better or worse for women and girls. The number of dedicated cash-for-work programs, for example, targeted at women is actually far too small. And it's no surprise. If you don't target it, who do you think captures most of Mm. the benefits Mm. uh, of cash assistance? Um, So, you know, that's something we need to work on. And then lastly, this localization work stream, recognizing the important work, like I have our colleagues here from from Syria, the first responders on the ground, women's organizations that need to receive direct support, and they're really, really not getting it Mm. and finding better ways to do that. So I just wanted to highlight, those are three themes where, through the work with the informal friends group. You know, we have Hannah here who, who, who takes part in that. Uh, and others, you know, we're, we're really trying to push this um, uh, forward. Uh, and just some headline themes. Thank you.
0: Right. So, uh, Dan, you've said gender equality does not stick. I mean, this is a, is, is a very damning statement, but the reality, I think, Right. So, in the current environment where you have US President Donald Trump retreating on a number of multilateral commitments, uh, the gag, uh, you know, he's not going to be giving money to family planning organizations. In this kind of environment, what can the United Nations or women's, uh, UN women do to keep this issue on, on, on the agenda, not let it slide off?
1: Well, I, I mean, I, I think first of all, we have to remember that this is just a, a constant, daily, persistent 24, seven struggle, mm-hmm. right? Um, but what I do want to say, I mean, you know, so, so having made a damning statement, let me say something optimistic. Um, I think that obviously uh, a number of people, individuals, organizations, um, I was in Sweden recently meeting with the government there. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's concerns all around about a possible uh, retreat on the gender agenda right now and, and within the international space. And you mentioned some of the things that I think uh, are concerning people. La- just a few days ago, here in Brussels, the yeah. She Decide uh, conference yeah. generated some roughly t- almost $200 million um, for work on sexual reproductive health and rights. I mean, I, what I am seeing is a galvanizing mm. of the women's movement that I have never seen in my professional lifetime, at least. There's never been as much energy, and it is so inspiring. And what's particularly inspiring about it as well, actually, is that... Is that at least for me, everything, every time I've had the opportunity and the, and the good fortune to be uh, in a space where that movement is coalescing and, and giving its energy, there's so many young people there. So, mm. I mean, and that really gives me um, a, a lot of course optimism. So I think we need to bring in, we need to actually capture and harness, just like colleagues did here in Brussels mm. with the she So Conference, take advantage because actually I think this is a movement, I mean, a historic movement, the women's movement, which historically has been at its strongest when it's pushed the hardest, mm. and that's definitely where we are right now. Thank you.
0: Right, so other people stepping in. How many in the room agree with what Daniel has just said, that this is a galvanizing moment for the women's movement? How many of you think so? So Trump is possibly a gift in a sense that it's made us, it's made us more aware of how delicate and how fragile certain of our so-called acquis are. I think it's made me much more aware of how things are so fragile
1: if I could not be quoted as saying Donald Trump is a gift, I would appreciate it. Thank you. you would agree,
0: would you? Right, okay. Well, thank you. So most of us, well, not most of us, not everyone put up their hands, but this is an important moment uh, uh, for all of us here. So, uh, Monique, let's, let's come to, to you. You know, um, European Commission, uh, European Union is, I think, one of the leading donors of humanitarian uh, assistance. Uh, how carefully are you sort of incorporating the <coughs> women's gender-based issues into your aid efforts?
2: Uh, thank you, Shala. I will, <coughs> I will try to explain to you how we integrate the, indeed, the, the gender issue in our, in our approach. As, uh, as you know, and as was very well described by Daniel, uh, the uh, humanitarian crisis do not affect uh, women And men uh, in the same way. So, therefore, we have tried to ensure that in our funding, we take into account the difference uh, between. But even I would even insist not uh, only women and and girls, but also men and boys, because I think each of of them requests different kind of of, uh, treatment, or at least different ways to address their their, their needs. So I would like to give you an example in, in Mosul, in Iraq. Uh, the UN estimates that there are between uh, 750 and 800,000 uh, civilians remaining in western Mosul. 230,000 of these people have already been displaced since the beginning of the Mosul military operation in October to, uh, 2016. So civilians are at an extreme risk during the military campaign, and women, children, the elderly and disabled will require specific protection. So the EU has allocated over 100 millions of euros to the Mosul, Tel Afar and Hawija emergency preparedness and response, ensuring that safe uh, shelter and Mm -hmm. gender-sensitive wash facilities are available, providing protection from gender-based violence, and ensuring that women, girls, boys, and men can equally access life-saving services. And uh, out of this amount, we have supported the UNFPA uh, with over 4 million to ensure, uh, among other issues, that dignity kits and access to sexual and reproductive health care are available for all women and girls in But as you said, Shada, uh, before, women and girls are not only victims. And, you know, being a woman, I'm also sometimes tied to be considered as a victim all the time. So they can also play an active role and an important role in contributing to peace and resilience in their communities. And I think we have two examples here today. (coughs) So in order to ensure that the humanitarian response is adapted to address uh, the specific needs of women and girls... They need to adequately participate in the design, mm-hmm. implementation, and evaluation of the humanitarian action. So, women participation in the humanitarian response is also strongly mm-hmm. promoted uh, in all our EU-funded uh, humanitarian actions. And uh, one other thing I would like to say is also while the uh, gen- crises often aggravate uh, existing gender inequalities they can also create a window of opportunity for social changes by challenging traditional gender roles and uh, gender-based discrimination. Mm -hmm. So that's also something we can support. And I would like to give you a very quick example Mm -hmm. of that in Yemen, where our eco-partner Oxfam and CARE, together with the GenCAP project, recently conducted a survey a study on the impact of the conflict on gender relations in, in Yemen. And even before the crisis, Yemen was one of the most gender unequal countries of the world, ranking 145 out of 145 countries in the World Economic Forum's global gender gap. However, this study shows that the prolonged conflict has changed the roles and responsibilities of women and men, and there are are now more female-headed households, and men's roles as breadwinner is also decreasing. For security reasons, obviously, men and boys are taking over traditional roles of women and girls, such as collecting water and grazing the livestock, So women report greater opportunities to participate and engage in decision-making and new space for earning income. A brief word on how we integrate the gender uh, uh, dimension in uh, our humanitarian crisis. So we have uh, a specific policy uh, for that, which is to uh, have a common understanding between EU staff and our partner organizations To promote adequate response to the different needs, and for that we have a uh, a gender. uh, We have issued uh, also. We have taken that into consideration in our protection guidelines that were issued last year, uh, that provide guidance for promoting of our promotion for uh, programming uh, protection activities including gender-based violence in humanitarian crisis for measuring the effect of interventions, and for planning capacity, building capacities. I think that's also very important to, to yeah. finance capacity-building capa- uh, activities. And in order to... Uh, be able to measure uh, that, uh, we have developed a gender age marker, which is uh, an accountability tool that measures how strongly the EU-funded humanitarian actions integrate gender and age, and uh, uh, according to this gender marker, uh, in 2015, 89% uh, uh, of all EU-funded projects for uh, humanitarian aid Um, had integrated either strongly or to a certain extent uh, a gender and age uh, dimension. So, uh, And also two other elements I would like to to underline. Since 2014, the EU has allocated more than €1 million to global capacity-building projects, which, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, are quite important, on gender and gender-based violence in humanitarian crises. And in 2016, we allocated over 18 million of euros <coughs> for humanitarian aid and prevention and response to the gender-based violence in 84 different projects in different parts of the world, uh, targeting some 3.4 million uh, mm-hmm. direct beneficiaries. And finally, uh, the EU is also an active member of the Global Initiative Call to Action on protection from gender-based violence in emergency, and we will take over the chair of that uh, for the, this year.
0: So Monique, over the, thank you very much indeed for all that. So over the years, there's been a growing awareness, if you like, of the need to put more uh, emphasis, money, attention to these issues? Have you seen that evolve really in terms of political thinking as well? Well, this is,
2: this is something that is more and more present in our way of analyzing project, in, in the way we target, or we want our partners to target their measures, because uh, as said in my introduction, we have the women, girls, boys, men's, need different kinds of uh, protection, different kinds of, of uh, support. And that's what we, we need to integrate and that's what we, we see more and more uh, being taken on board. And uh, as Daniel said uh, before, that starts from the needs assessment. And this is something, and uh, you mentioned the grand bargain, I think this is something we very much uh, insist on, that we have Uh, joint needs assessment global needs assessment that integrate all together the needs of all people Mm. populations concerned based on their own specificities so that we can better target our response and better adjust our our
0: instruments. Right. Uh, Ula, so a lot of policy talk here about what is being done on the international level and the European level. Also a strong comment from Monique saying that Actually, when there is uh, a humanitarian crisis, traditional lo- roles can change and can be a catalyst for change, in fact. I was just wondering from your experience, um, to give us a little bit of how you see the situation changing. What are you doing? What is Badael doing to bring more women into the, into the debate, into the conversation?
3: Um, first of all, happy Women Day. Um, Actually, uh, I want to start with a little bit of introduction about Bedael, and then move from there to give an examples from the work that we do with with civil society in general, but women with uh, right. with women uh, led group, let's say. Um, so since mid two thousand and thirteen, we have been uh, providing different kind of support to local civil society grassroots groups, including women groups and activists, uh, and we have provided over. Um, uh, T- we have provided support to over 250 uh, Syrian civil society grassroots groups uh, over the past almost four years. Um, half of the beneficiaries from our, from our programs are actually women groups and women activists. Um, in our last year, uh, last, uh, last physical year, 51, even more than, than 50% of our beneficiaries were women. 51% of the, of the beneficiaries were women. Um, and sometimes when we, when we actually, uh, you know, like say that mo- the majority of our beneficiaries are women, um, uh, our partners or, uh, or the people that we communicate with get surprised that how come that, you know, half of the civil society that you work with are women. Um, and this is basically uh, related to the lack of, of, of knowledge about the civil society grassroots groups and women groups who were, who were very active in the, in the conflict zones that we, we work on. And we have we have been observing and witnessing a lot of, you know, lack of knowledge regarding the, the, this type of activity that has been, uh, you know, carried out by, by women groups and civil society groups. And no, of course, I mean, even when it comes to media, there is no enough coverage to this kind of in- initiative. Everyone is interested in covering the fights and who is fighting who and uh, what the Assad have done and what the what the other armed group have done. But they lack, you know, like they, they don't really cover enough... Um, the, the initiative that brings a bit of hope. Um, and what we have seen over the years is that civil society and women in groups are actually the one who is who is preventing the country from falling apart. Because of the involvement and the type of activities that they do inside the country, starting from from edu- from uh, providing alternative education uh, to getting involved in the humanitarian uh, humanitarian kind of work wh- whether it's you know like um, um, medical or the distribution of food uh, and um, uh, and coming to documentations of human rights violations and then to peace building um, with, with the work that we have done with those uh, women groups and civil society so civil society groups, um, we have, through our work, but also through uh, the uh, other type of work that we do th- in our research program, uh, which I would encourage everyone to uh, to have a look at this uh, research, which is called, uh, it's a study about women peace activism. And it can be, sorry, we don't have copies, but it can be found in our, our website. It's... Uh, it's a study that, the uh, the the local the local initiatives by the, the peace initiatives by by the by, by the women groups and women activists and leaders, um, and through this, this research but other but other work as well, uh, we have found out that um, the majority of the women groups they know exactly how to design their intervention and based on what um, they are the one who knows their, their needs in their in their, uh, in their region and what kind of, of intervention has to be done in that regards. Um, so, for example, the women in, in Hasake, Governorate, which is under the PYD control, they have... Uh, 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 thought about coexistence between the different components in the region as one of their main priorities. So having the Kurds, the Arabs, the Assyrians in that regions are, you know, enough reason to work on, on, on coexistence between those different components. And they have designed the majority of their projects related to peace is actually related to the coexistence and dialogue between the different components. Not because there is a current fight between those components, but because they're afraid that in the future... Uh, there might be a kind of of, uh, of, uh, of a conflict, and so it 's more like of an early response to a potential kind of conflict. while we could see in some other areas in the countryside of Damascus, for example, they were more focusing. And and in Damascus, they were more focusing on the political activism and engagement of women. And when we try to understand why they are actually more focused on the political engagement in 1325 than other areas and the other regions of Syria, we found out that it's actually because the feminist groups and and movement prior to 2011 were very much active in Damascus. Mm -hmm. And and they do, they they are located, they have done a lot of work with, with with different activists in the countryside with Damascus and Damascus on on the political uh, political activism. So it's more. It's more. This issue is more addressed in that region, while we see in other areas, for example, that combating child recruitment is one of the main 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 uh, main topics that has been dealt with mm-hmm. in, the, in the in the local groups because they have been they identified as a phenomenon that they need to work on, and they have been even. Uh, uh, very much creative, even me when I was co-authoring this uh, co-writing this research, I was very surprised although I work with with women groups and civil society groups in a daily work that's, that's my work, but I was very surprised to see, you know, the amount of work when you look at the whole picture and you see the amount of work that has been done in that, in that regard and the creativity that they, they actually um, uh, uh, adopt in, in 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 implementing their projects so i'll i'll give just one example mm-hmm. um, in the northern countryside of uh, of alipo one of the group decided that they want to work on the child recruitment but at the same time it's very risky to work on the child recruitment because if they announce their project that you know they were they 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 are they, working on this the, and the who's recruiting children? It's the army group who's controlling that region. And if they announce the work that they do, they will be all of them under, under risk of arrest or, or kidnapping, right. or, or etc. So they have decided to bring women together as mothers of, of, of mm-hmm. children who have been invo- yeah, involved in the, in the fight mm-hmm. or potentially might get involved in the fight. And they invited them to illiteracy courses. And throughout the literacy courses, they started to, to provide, you know, information uh, and yeah. carry on discussions about child recruitment and the, the, the consequences of it. Um, of course, the armored group in the region have no problem of having, having literacy courses for women because this is something very acceptable. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't think that other topics are actually, uh, you know, discussed in this, in this uh, place. So what I'm trying to say is that the women groups, they know exactly what is their needs. Right. And here I come to the point where in any kind of work that's related to the humanitarian or the political participation or whatever, there should be you know, a more con- intensive consultations with the, with, the, with the groups because we have been you know, seeing uh, over the years that in Syria case – that many, many organizations are actually donor-oriented mm-hmm. because the donor decides that this is the strategy that we need to adopt for, for, for this kind of topic and then people get, you know, involved in this but not because they, they, they are convinced with it but because they need, they need these resources. And... And here it's the time we're like to shift this kind of like designing uh, 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 how to distribute the money is to like understanding more the local needs and consul, right. uh, uh, you know, intensive consultations with local local people. Is that happening women. now,
0: Ula? Is that happening now? Are well, you I being think, involved more?
3: I, I I think it's it's not very much happening. I think it's it's not that it, we have not seen. Uh, like uh, an initiative or like really clear observation that right. this is really happening right. of course it 's different from a donor to another it 's different from from uh, uh, from an organization to another let 's say but at the end, the common sense is that you know, the donor decide what is needed for the country, right. not the local people. Right. And at the end, if we, don't, if we don't bring the local people into the, or may support and empower the local people, because at the end now today, if I want to look at all uh, INGOs who are based in Gaziantab, for example, uh, they're going to go at some point in two years, in five years, yes. in seven years, they're going to go. The people who are going to left are the Syrian people and, who, and are the right. one who is going to build the future for the country. Yeah. So we need to pay more attention to support the local, the local actors. And here I would just quickly highlight that the, from the work that we see, the main challenges for women groups and civil society groups and other NGOs, and the, and that's also even applied for, for us organizations who are... Um, based in, uh, in, in uh, or have offices in the neighboring countries and uh, officially registered, etc., is that uh, it's security situation on the number one. And that's, that's of course, a, the, the huge challenge for, for all of us. And there is no way that this challenge can be dealt with from us because we, we're, no, we're peaceful actors. Right. Uh, all what we can do is to try to influence right. the political process um, and here, what I would like to emphasise that there is no solution for Syria uh, 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 except a political solution. Right. It's the only solution for Syria. And here, where it's international community, um, EU countries, uh, uh, Trump administration. Although we don't know, we have no idea what's going to happen related to Syria, is like to push for a political solution. And since the last, the last peace talk in, in Geneva last week, it doesn't seem that it's actually going anywhere. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't recall the, the number of the peace talks. It's maybe four or the fifth peace talk that takes take place now. And we're moving, we're moving actually nowhere because simply there is no international... Like, there is no genuine will in ending, ending the conflict in Syria. Um, there should be more pressure, and international community should, should be, be taking more responsibility in terms of what, what they actually have, have to do. Put more pressure on Russia, for example, because they are the, the one who is supporting the, the regime. And it's clear from this talk and from other talks that the regime is not willing to actually... Um, Carry on any, any kind of uh, uh, progress in terms of the talk. every time we have Geneva, the increase of violence and, and, uh, inside the country become, uh, become crazy, and we understand that it 's actually a tactic from the, a military tactic from the regime. In order to avoid any any process in the talk, but then here where it comes that the international community role is to putting more pressure on the regime and its international papers to really uh, uh, have have uh, you know sit on the table and negotiate and get to find to find an agreement.
0: Right. Ula, we'll ask you, uh, if I may just interrupt, thank you very much for making those very, very important points. We'll ask you in a minute about the involvement of women because there aren't any women involved in the peace talks, uh, in the negotiations in Geneva, not not at all, as far as I know.
3: Uh, Well, there is a a very small percentage of the women who are involved in the the negotiation uh, delegations. But uh, but let me highlight this. we have been calling as women activists and women uh, and civil society organizations of uh, uh, the importance of inclusion, including women in the, in the peace talk. And, and we were like, the minimum percentage that we, we might you know, start with is 30%. So far, this, is, this is, did not happen. Right. And we've also been pressuring the UN, Stevan de Mistura, to like put more pressure on having more women on, on the negotiation mm-hmm. table, but this not take, uh, have not taken place. What has been created as an alternative, which um, I'm very much against it, for one reason is that they created what is called the the women consultative body. Oh, right. um, they have brought twelve women from different from different uh, 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 political parties or like different backgrounds to be a consultative body for Mr. Mistura, and they claim to be a representation of women yeah. of women, uh, of, mm-hmm. women uh, of women uh, of women of yeah. women in general. But at the end of the day, this is this is a consultative body. Right. It, it's mandate, it's very, it's very limited. Yeah. Right. Um, to have a women, I mean, and that that's not an alternative for including yeah. women, inclu- the inclusion no. of women it's on the It's tokenism in a sense. Yeah. It's like, think. it's an alternative thing to just do, for, for me, to check the box. Right. But uh, but this is not the inclusion okay. that we would like to see. And that's the same apply for the Sy- Syrian civil society. We were saying that civil, Syrian civil society have to be involved in the talk yeah. and have to be, to play a monitoring role, have to play a, an advocacy role, et cetera. But then at the end, the civil society room that has been issued a year ago, it's still the mandate is very limited. Right. And it's still playing a consultative body. But we need a more active uh, yeah. role instead of a consultative role. Right.
0: Thank you very much. I'm sure there'll be questions. I'm going to just uh, ask Marcel and uh, Tanaka-san to come in as well and then open the floor. Um, Marcel, from your experience as well, you're working on a local level on education issues. What is the role of women, and is it being used as, as, as it should? Are the opportunities there? Okay,
4: hello. I'm Marcel Shohwaro. I'm General Manager of a Syrian Initiative. We created it in 2011. I will talk briefly what we do, and later on I will comment why I think that like, we didn't learn a lot about I, from our INGOs colleagues regarding women's rights. They are part of the battle. We have to fight with them over women's rights mm. and why this is happening. Uh, we work on four programs regarding women's rights. The first one is girl education. We have dropouts, crazily, after the fourth grade. And due to early marriage and due to the circumstances, of the school system inside Syria, the schools are targets for airstrikes. So people doesn't really feel safe to send their kids to school, especially girls. And after they learn how to write and read, they stop sending them. And we visited 200 families to see why they are not sending them. And we convinced 100 to go back to education 30 through homeschooling because they are early brides. They are between 12 and 15, and they are married. So we convinced the families to send a teacher to the husband's house so she stays. This is opportunity through the war that before the war is not there. Sending a teacher to teach in early bride house, this wouldn't be happening in Syria because it's not allowed to. Right now, everyone is concerned that the husband may die and the girl is not protected. So she needs to be learning somehow. So if someone provides that, that's amazing. The problem is, in this project and each project, that we have this obsession regarding beneficiaries. This project costs more than teaching normal kids who can walk alone to the school. So this obsession of beneficiaries, we wanna teach 300. 300, normally, they are the ones who have access by their own. In one of the like, examples, we have uh, nine youth girls studying in a school, and this is the whole number of the whole school. This school cost us as much as 300 children learning. So we have to decide which one we're going to support, because this is only nine and no one is interested in supporting 9, 17-year-old girls to study. These choices based on beneficiaries' number is part of the problem. We need to think about women's rights regardless. of If we can, in the same amount of money, teach 300 men. Yeah, we can. Obviously, we can. They can move around easily. They, half of them carry their like, arms proudly. So, yeah, they can move in but we need to create program that is not obsessed about beneficiary. Hmm. The other program we have, we have something called Governance Fellowship. We bring uh, Syrian women and for one year inside Syria to do intensive teaching regarding governance. We have only 2% women in the local councils, which is for the last five years is supported by European and American money. And still the percentage is 2% because no one is considering it a priority. And the problem when you work in a country like Syria, there is an easy excuse. It's conservative countries, no one. Yeah, it is conservative, but not that conservative. Hmm. 2% is not a reflection on reality. It's a reflection of laziness and discrimination. So we decided to get a do governance fellowship. Okay, they say we don't have enough qualifications. Let's compete on this. Let's see how we can provide, in the countryside, well-educated on governance, which is a topic no one taught before the revolution in Syria, nor to men, nor to women. And after one year, we're going to put them as volunteers in the local councils. The third project is we have also a problem in participation in the civil society level. Uh, We have 1,100 Syrian civil society. 50 only are women-led organizations. So our percentage is 5% in civil society. Of course, I'm talking about the management level. And when we went around to see who is doing M&E then, men are questioning like taking the questionnaire, doing the need assessment, doing everything, are men. And in Syria, men knocking on women's door to enter and do questionnaires is not going to happen. Right now, it's not going to happen. So obviously, no one is taking enough care mm-hmm. on receiving the response Feedback. of women. Mm-hmm. When we started questioning our like, colleagues in INGOs, why there is this lack of women participation in jobs like this, Lack of access. There is lack of access and security concerns, so we can't put public announcements. Okay, so we trained 200 women on how to write their CVs all around Syria, and we are going to train 400 now. And we collected these CVs and hired someone to, to bully around. <laughs> like, we have 600 CVs inside Syria is ready to work. Let's drop lack of access as an excuse and start reality check on why we are not hiring women as M&E. And they tell us, like, they can't go and visit to assure that the truck is on their space. Yeah, but need assessment is not only taking a picture of the truck or for visiting the bakery area. There's so many areas of this is not happening. So this project, we called it which means she can do it. and we are like, considering to collect 1,000 CVs, so we end up with the lack of access. Thing.
0: So things are changing. You are actually changing yeah, I think, certain paradigms. I think, I think there is a,
4: through the chaos, there is opportunities. If we sit and watch, there is where no one is looking, and you can create an opportunity right. there. Okay. And this is where we need to be focusing. On the policy level, mm-hmm. For the last five years, half of the education in Syria is supported by INGOs. If we created, in these five years, anti-harassment policy, removing it in the future will be a scandal. But we didn't. We need to build things Mm. that in the future, any prime minister, any education minister, Mm. if if they deleted it, keep it to us, we're going to do a huge scandal about it. But when there is no policy regarding harassment in school, putting a new one would be a battle. Later mm. on, when the situation mm. is easy and we have central education back, putting one on would be like really right. difficult. Right. So I think my recommendation would be let's focus more on participation, mm. not only on protection. Because the protection in the old humanitarian term mm. is becoming relatively linked to the victimization. Mm. Yeah, the Syrian woman sitting in the front of the tent They are not only covering fighting, they are covering us, our victims. I'm a shock. When I talk about what we do, there's like, oh, my God. And then trying to fit me. Are you a Syrian? Really? Have you lived all your life in Syria? And then you dress like this. I'm like, okay. Right. (laughs) So So a lot of stereotypes also. And... uh, Local consultation, as Aula said, and, and not decorative local consultation. Mm. Because as a woman, I know when I am there because they need a woman in the, pa- in the panel. And now I know when they need a local in the panel. Everything is designed and everything is there. And the humanitarian summit was exactly like this. <laughs> they need, and London conference and all the international conferences, they need a local to make it legitimate. Look, we brought the local. We need active consultation because in active consultation we can say there is an opportunity in there this village have mixed weddings so it's easier to have mixed education mixed we know that so without our approach all the programs won't be brave enough Mm -hmm. and without bravery there is no woman rights Mm -hmm. so women's right need to question that the last and i hopefully i will end now (laughs) Uh, the last is we need active sisterhood through the feminist movement. Yeah, I agree that the feminist movement right now is reviving. I don't think Trump is a gift. <laughs> if someone considers that, I will give them our own pr-
2: gift. As <laughs> no, thank envoy.
4: you. Uh, but active sisterhood protects us. There is women trafficking, there is Syrian women trafficking in the neighboring country. And we do have a Syrian passport, so I can't work in that topic because the neighboring country is not democratic as they look like. So we need someone with more privilege than us to be working in such difficult topics. And to know that we need active sisterhood Hmm. through the the feminist movement to know, because we are like dealing with even those who are participating and who, who reached that point are burned out and considering to leave. And when we are gonna leave, Men going to come to take our seats. It's not, <laughs> like, not going to be another woman. They're going to give it to a man, and we will be less and less percentage.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Marcel. <laughs> <laughs> I hope Monique, you've been listening, and Dan as well. I think this is a, a very, very strong and important message for international organisations uh, to take on board. Uh, finally, last but not least, Yumiko Tanaka-san, I wanted to ask you, you've been listening, and I wanted your comments on some of the issues that our friends have raised. And I know that JICA is working very hard on disaster, disaster risk reduction, which is, of course, very important if we're going to actually prevent and then make uh, societies more resilient. Okay.
5: Thank you very much. Um, uh, I think the humanitarian crisis, are caused not only by conflicts, but also the climate change, natural disasters, infectious diseases, population growth, rapid urbanization, and so on. So the main challenges that women face in humanitarian crisis are related with the women's high social and economic vulnerability, which are the results of the persistent stereotyped gender roles, unequal gender relations, and gender discrimination, as you all know. And since I'm not... I am more of an expert on gender and disaster risk reduction than the conflict and peace building. Uh, the things I discuss now may be drawn mainly from the disaster fields. And, but uh, I think the basic gender issues we have to deal with are more or less the same, regardless if it's gender in conflict or the disaster risk reduction. And um, as we have to take the humanitarian crisis in a wider context, and promote human security not only in the emergency situations, but also in the normal times in the development context. Uh, that's where I, I've been working on. And as you know, that more than 60% of the world disasters happen in the Asian region, and we have been dealing with such disasters as a typhoon, hurricane, tsunami, earthquake, flash flood, landslides, and so on. And most of them are natural hazards, but we also face man-made disasters, such as the nuclear power stations problem happened in uh, Fukushima after the tsunami incident. And there are so many challenges that women face in the humanitarian crisis, such as the high vulnerability of women, the gender-based violence, the recognition of women merely as recipient of aid or subject of protection, uh, rather than the, them considered as the agent of change and leaders in decision-making processes. And the, lastly, the poli- policies and the institutional setups are not so gender responsive and um, gender mainstreaming has not been very well, very much done, uh, done yet. So I think we should pay more focus on the coping capacities of women and other marginalized groups in society and while reducing their vulnerabilities and risks, we must make their coping capacities more visible and involve women as active ch- agents of change to build resilience for disasters and conflicts. And we need to reform the related laws, legislations, and institutional mechanisms to make um, policy work at the grassroots levels where assistance are most needed. And uh, you probably know that the disaster kills more women than men and hits women's livelihood hardest, as said at the World Humanitarian Summit. And regarding the women's vulnerability to disasters, the statistics show that more number of women die by disasters than men. For example, uh, I can give you an example uh, of the huge cyclone uh, hit Bangladesh in early 1990s. Um, During this cyclone, more than 90% of the deceased persons was female. And do you know why it happened? Uh, because the well, first one is because of the care works, that the women were not able to escape quickly since they had to take care of the cattle, children, and the elderly persons. And the second, women's literacy rate was very low, so could not get information from the written notice on disaster warnings and preparation. And third is the health issues, and women were less healthy and nourished than men to be able to escape and survive. You know that women are usually the last one to eat at home in many Asian countries. And the, regarding gender norms, due to Parda, Parda is the segregation norm uh, which divides the men's and women's space to live. So women didn't know where the shelters were and how to get there without being accompanied by men. And mosques usually could not become shelters because women are not allowed to enter. And women were not allowed to learn how to swim or climb the trees. It's against their maybe religion or their gender norms. And they just cannot uh, swim in saris. You know, the dress they wear, it's very difficult to move in water. And again, the subordinate subordinate positions, women did not get the first-hand information, but only through male members. So they could not make quick decisions to escape by themselves. And they are hardly the members of the community disaster management committees. So this is just an example of Bangladesh, but these things are happening in many uh, Muslim countries in Asia and the remote rural areas. And it's not just happening in the developing countries, but the same thing happened in Japan as well. Uh, We had a big earthquake in 1994 in Hanshin and Awaji. and that time, uh, 1,000 more women died than men. Uh, And those women who passed away were single, elderly, and poor women living in um, um, uh, non-earthquake-proof houses. You know, the single elderly women are sort of uh, biased against the social security system in Japan, so they are living in the very poor conditions. That's why many of them passed away during the Hanshin uh, earthquake. And also in the East Japan earthquake, which occurred about six years ago, more women died also. And uh, time that time, more elderly people passed away uh, during the earthquake and the tsunami, and more persons with the disability passed away. They couldn't escape. So the impact of the, the, the disaster varies by age, gender, disabilities, and location where people live and other socio-economic factors. And the economic conditions impact the pace and quality of the recovery from disasters as well. Mm-hmm. If you are rich and have lots of savings, you can recover and reconf- uh, reconstruct faster than those who don't have any savings. And uh, last year we did a joint study with the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security in Washington DC on the disaster and gender, and also peace building and gender. And I was on the team of the disaster and gender um, issues. And we found out that in Sri Lanka, when the Indian Ocean tsunami hit Sri Lankan eastern Eastern coast in 2004, they were under the long-term internal conflicts. So women were restricted to go to banks in rural areas and did not trust the banks anyway. So they had all the savings at home and they got all washed away by tsunami. So the conflict worsened the disaster impact in Sri Lanka. If, if, it's combined, uh, if the conflict is combined with natural disasters, the impact is much greater. And... Um, I can go on like this, you know, but uh, since time is limited, I will stop shortly. But uh, there are lots of issues after disaster, like violence against women increases. And um, also the shelters, emergency shelters. Women uh, don't have much privacy because most of the shelters are run by elderly men. And they are not very sensitive about the women's specific needs. And um, in the Philippines and Sri Lanka, I think the UNFPA has established a women-friendly space along with the child-friendly space. And these women-friendly spaces were needed to protect them from the violence and also uh, address the specific needs for women. So I think uh, we we need those uh, uh, women-friendly spaces in the future. And there are lots of issues aftermath, but... uh, I think um, the develop, develop the national disaster risk management laws, policies, and action plans, we have to be very gender and diversity sensitive. It's not just women who suffer, but uh, pregnant women, persons with disabilities, minority groups, uh, all of these vulnerable groups suffer more. And we have to develop the national and local contingency plan, these emergency evacuation plans, from the gender and diversity perspective and make women participate in early warning systems and set the women's ratio in the central and local committees for disaster risk reduction. And we have to also promote the meaningful participation of women and leadership in every stage of the disaster risk management, uh, starting from preparedness, emergency rescue and response, rehabilitation, reconstruction, and prevention. And uh, we have to assure human security for women, uh, such as dispatch women women rescue teams and assign female police to the camps and shelters and prevent sexual and gender based violence aftermath and set up women friendly spaces, etc. And provide early support with women for economic empowerment, housing, subsidies. Deproductive health care together with support for the transformative leadership development. These are very, very right. important. Okay, thank you very much. No, thank, you.
0: thank you indeed very much. I was just wondering, it is a long list of things that need to be done. I was just wondering, people are taking this into account when developing humanitarian assistance strategies? I mean, these are very valid points that you've raised. These uh, are the are donors that, doing that? Uh, yeah, many
5: agencies are now talking about I suppose. But implementing as well, done.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is an enormously important issue, um, and we are so far from doing enough. <laughs> right? So let's, let's just be very... I don't right. think we should fool ourselves. I mean, um, there's a, for example, just to give you one example on this, the, the, there's so little um, uh, investment put into uh, breaking down the data on the differential impacts, uh, particularly of climate-related disasters on men and women. So we're still using data from the 1991 cyclone in Bangladesh, right. 26 years ago, right? I mean, it's not criticism at all. There's a 2007 right. study, which we're basically all relying on. Anybody who's trying to push this issue <laughs> is, 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 has very, very little data to work off. And that, that's just, I give that just as one example. Right. Um, what I am... Uh, you know, hopefully, I think something we're, we're trying to do. We have a, a, a new uh, program with the International Federation of the Red Cross Red Crescent Societies and with UNISDR, which is the, the disaster reduction platform, uh, which will launch in Cancun the, the global platform on disaster risk reduction in May, um, which is really trying to take the Sendai framework. And this is, this is a good news thing. The Sendai framework, which is the international framework for disaster risk reduction, is actually very good and strong on gender. The government of Japan and others were really, you know, very mm-hmm. positive uh, forces in that. Um, but we really, really need to step up the game mm. in that. Mm. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that women are given the space to genuinely, and your points on tokenism are very, very well <laughs> taken, to, to genuinely impact in disaster risk management mm. and disaster preparedness plans, um, that there's actually budget uh, put into it, mm. uh, and that those plans are then, of course, you know, gender responsive. And we're so far from that right now. And, and with climate change, it's, it's a really urgent thing for us to get right.
0: Right. Thank you very much. Um, We've heard some very, very interesting and I think informative and very urgent issues tackled here. I'd like to open the floor to questions and comments from yourselves. Uh, please put up your hand so I know how many more or less people will be, will be coming in. So, uh, yeah, fine. So, my colleague, yeah. So, Jackie first. Jackie, just quickly introduce herself. Um,
6: Rafael, there, yeah. Hi, I'm Jackie from... uh, I work for Save the Children uh, in Brussels, and and thanks to the panel, that was a fantastic um, uh, tour of the issues. Um, Yeah, I mean, the question I want to ask is... uh, I I hesitate to put it on the table, but I'm going to. Um, Yeah, I I agree with the panellists, and and, um, particularly our our colleagues from Syria, about the importance of women's participation. Um, Put simply, if uh, we're going to have aims to consult, um, take into account um, gender issues, we have to get women actually doing the job. So, um, you know, there's a 2016 study just out, I recommend recommend to you, on women in humanitarian leadership. Uh, which finds that still only 30% of the humanitarian country teams, UN humanitarian country teams, are are led by women. Mm. And I can say, and I think a lot of us would agree from the INGO sector, that um, full of women at the bottom um, and and in the uh, lower managerial uh, ranks, but those actually holding budgets and working in the field are still men, and as long as that doesn't change, uh, we won't get uh, this um, uh, gender-based needs assessments in place. Um, So getting women to participate is key. Um, both on the peace building side and on the humanitarian response so should we be setting quotas for um, uh, humanitarian um, uh, leadership um, both in the senior management at the UN and in the senior management of um, uh, NGO, um, uh, INGOs and uh, uh, quotas in terms of the women led beneficiaries thank you
0: mm. No, it's an important question to ask Jackie thank you for that uh, the UN is led by a man ag- again, though we had hopes that it would be a woman this time around. So that was a bit of a stamp script, if I may say so. So uh, I'll take a couple of other questions. Let's take Ulla, uh, please. Just put up your hand.
7: I am uh, Aris Kokinos, a journalist for a website called uh, <laughs> lerobol.com. Um, Mr. Seymour, your reference to the cash commitment, uh, given money rather than things, sparks a question linked to current news. Uh, In the French election, the socialist candidate, Benoît Hamon, defends the idea of uh, the universal income, le revenu universel, uh, which argues for an income for all, independently of salary or not. Many in France say that this would be absurd because it would only aggravate debt and inflation, but some say that if it was uh, applied to incomes in work, this, in addition to saving money for national budgets, could also fill up the, the gender pay gap. What would you make of such an argumentation as a UN responsible?
0: Okay. Let's take those two questions, very important questions to answer. Who would like to answer the one about should we have quotas for humanitarian leadership? Monique, do you want to come into that? Madame Tanaka as well?
2: Thank you, Shada. Uh, I mean, on this very question, uh, the... This is the, you know, the traditional question, and it doesn't apply only to NGOs or to humanitarian aid, or it applies everywhere. So we are not in a different situation here than elsewhere, and uh, this is always the question: Do we have to be, you know, do we need a, a quota, and then to be appointed because because we are a woman, or do we have to be appointed because we are good? Mm. So, and this is a question I've been struggling for years. Uh, it's the same inside the commission. Mm. We are also few women. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to fight to come to the top. Um, for many years, I thought no quota, because I don't want, you know, to be considered as, un- because you are a woman, you are where you are. But I I have slightly changed my mind, I must say, on that. Uh, And I think uh, you will never reach parity if you don't set for a period objectives, at least. You call it quota, objectives, whatever. But you have for a while to set very concrete and binding objectives. And once you've reached that, then you have the uh, internal dynamic that will change. Mm. But as long as you don't have that, probably, I think, and again, I've changed my mind on that, mm. I think you have to uh, probably be a bit more... Um, you know,
0: Intrusive, th- instructive. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But again, this, is, this goes for all organizations, mm-hmm. for all governments, for all
0: parliaments, for businesses, for everywhere. For think tanks. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, thank you very much I think people do change their minds uh, as time goes on it is, it is a fact I think Monique, thank you very much for that very honest answer Dan, Marcel you want to come in as well?
1: Yeah, okay If I may just quickly on the, on, on the quotas thing um, you know it, when <coughs> we work on increasing women's political participation in parliaments Just and so on. Um, you know, we talk about temporary special measures, and it's very much in line with what Monique's uh, saying. I mean, I, I believe in quotas, uh, full stop. It, the, 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 the playing field is not level. As long as the playing field is not level and fair, then you need uh, special measures, and, and, and those are quotas. What I, what, I, uh, what I can tell you, and hopefully you know, this is, this is some nice news, the new Secretary General... Um, I know, met with the Under Secretary General, which is the, you know, the, the management level below, and he said, I expect, gender par- I expect you to achieve gender parity. This is not optional. And for those of you that are unable to achieve it, I will conclude you may be in the wrong job. <laughs> so he's been extremely uh, clear, I think. With, and I know from, from, from my boss, our executive director, uh, she said, I've never heard <laughs> something like that uh, at that level. So mm-hmm. I, hopefully we'll see some movement. What I do think we need to remember, though... Um, Yes, absolutely, and, you know, Jackie, your point is is, is extremely well taken, but we can't assume that a woman leader is necessarily automatically strong on gender equality. (laughs) That is is a far too quick a step to take. (laughs) So we still have to work, I also think, with female leadership, you know, in the UN and elsewhere. Um, On the question on on universal income, I mean, I'm I'm a believer in uh, universal income myself personally, but I know um, that within that broad discourse that the UN pulls together, particularly led by ILO around social protection... Uh, a minimum incomes, you know, there's, there's, there's arguments on, on both sides in that space. I think the UN's role uh, in this discourse so far has not been to, to take a position per se, to, not to be the actor, but to be the stage. Um, we are trying to provide a space. Uh, where where this can be discussed. But certainly there are very, very strong arguments uh, for universal income from the point of view of gender equality, Uh, absolutely. Um, And I think when you talk about cash in in humanitarian uh, contexts as well, I mean, we've seen from from the evaluations exactly how powerful a tool it can be in terms of addressing uh, gender inequality as well when it's done the right way. And it being done the right way, that's really the kind of the key thing for the discussion we're having, you know, at the moment on women and humanitarian action.
0: Right. Marcel, you wanted to come in on the issue of uh, women's leadership. Yeah. I, I'm also a big
4: believer in quota. Like, after and after working for, like, the last three years, I'm, like, kind of promoted everywhere. I'm meeting politicians all the time. Those who take this, the big money decisions, all of them are men. So... And I'm meeting, like, special envoys of Syria. They have only one woman, and it's Canada. And all of them are men. And, and this is not going to make change. If it's at the top, so it's going to be, like, reflected through the process. But it's not only that. I always obsess telling Ula, we are not a good example. We sleep at our office. We work for 12 hours a day. If I am at 20, like, 223, 23, I don't want it to be me. If they are watching us, they don't want it to be like this. We are not setting an example mm-hmm. of like, you can be normal, not a superhero. It's between either the victim or the superhero. <laughs> so, because they can't do good enough. Men can't do good enough in a public sphere. We should do perfect. So to do perfect, we work 12 hours and we have this rumors. Women-led organization has support. No, we don't. We are suffering financially all the women-led organizations that I know in Syria are suffering financially. While the men saying, gender-based is sexy, is brought money. There is these rumors that no one knows about that gender topics are sexy and attractive, and they attract humanitarian money. But in reality, this is not true. So we need to support female leaderships, even if they are not, like, feminist yet. But we need to support them Mm -hmm. because it's the first step. Participation is the first step for protection. Like, mm. yeah. and later on, we need to set programs to research this. We need to have numbers to talk about how many women have been in the UN and the political processes all over the world. And like, we need to keep pushing advocacy. And because quota won't solve the problem, mm. it will put us in there. Even I'm, I'm like, I'm with quota, but it won't solve our problems. Right. Thank you.
0: Thank you. There was a lady there, and then I had a... Uh, yes, so let's go here first.
8: Hello, I'm Celine Nias, and I direct the Care International Brussels office. Um, thank you very much to all of the panellists. Care is an organisation that really focuses on gender in emergencies and all of its humanitarian work. Uh, we've worked closely over the years with ECHO at global level on the gender marker, with UN Women on the Grand Bargain and Gender Equality issues. We do our best to support Syrian women's civil society participation. Probably isn't enough. Um, I'd be interested at some point to have your feedback uh, on that that I can pass on to my colleagues. Um, and of course, gender in, in DRR is, is also a very important issue. So just to say, um, I, I was really delighted by, uh, to, to hear all of you and feel very much in good company. Um, but as, uh, as was mentioned, this is an, an ongoing struggle um, and one that, um, I mean, here we're all probably fairly like-minded, but um, in the rest of the world, um, gender and emergencies and the importance of, of women's participation in particular in, in humanitarian situations is not a given. Um, I, I wanted to um, turn to Ms. Payat for a question. Um, you've mentioned that the EU is taking on the leadership for the global call um, for action on GPV. This is something that we've been working um, with member states uh, to influence member states on for a number of years, well, since the call uh, was issued, to try to get more EU member states engaged. And I'd be interested to know uh, what plans you have uh, in your leadership role uh, for the global call for action on GPV and how you think we can, you can, or we can collectively... Uh, engage more member states and, and more uh, commitments around this important issue. Thanks.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, please, Lady we're here. Uh, good morning. My name is Lucia Conti, AVSI Foundation. Uh, I have a question for Ms. Paria or also for others. Uh, we in AVSI think
9: that uh, women economic empowerment and access to education for girls is an essential precondition for gender equality. So do you think that
0: the humanitarian uh, um, agenda has sufficiently addressed uh, income-generating activities for women and uh, education in emergency? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, anyone else? Yes, the lady over there, right at the back. Uh, Amanda?
10: Hello, good morning, everybody. My name is Paula Brito, UNISDR, United Nations Office for Disaster Reduction. Thank you very much to the panelists for the presentation, but also for putting emphasis on uh, the dimension of prevention. This is something that came out very strongly at the humanitarian summit. And um, if we're talking about women, it certainly plays a key role. Because women, as mentioned this morning, have got a key role in household, key role in society, and key role in education of the youth. So the question to the panel is, how can we scale up capacity development on women and uh, disaster risk reduction prevention in a way in which we can amplify automatically the understanding and uh, the embracing of a culture of prevention? Because if we don't put emphasis on prevention, We are not going to get ahead of the curve of humanitarian needs. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very
0: important point.
10: Um, Is there anyone
0: else who wants to... Yes. Yes. Uh, Sorry. There were two hands coming up. So the gentleman over here, very, very brief, please, and then the lady over there. Uh,
7: Yes. Uh, My name is uh, Mahmoud Dar. I come from Somaliland, and uh, I want to, first of all, uh, congratulate you know the panel uh, for the uh, presentation they have made. Uh, in connection with that, I want to make one or two points. Uh, the first point is the underfunding of the of this program. It appears there is a huge underfunding by international organizations as far as this program is concerned. Uh, Uh, Secondly, uh, I want to say that, for example, in our region, uh, now we have a severe drought in Somalia, uh, in East Africa, and in the Sahel area, and this time in in East Africa, in the Horn of Africa especially. And, uh, you know, uh, women organizations are playing a very important role uh, in in this crisis. Uh, because men can, and the young men can easily go outside and immigrate, you try to immigrate to places like Europe, uh, but, you know, women remain uh, taking care of children, of the household, and, you know, they are doing a lot of good work, not only in that area, but in almost all areas. Uh, you know, the point I want to come Sir, could
0: I? I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we do need to go faster. Yes, the point I want to come with
7: concerns, you know, with the commission, with the EU commission. Uh, Originally, uh, and, uh, you know, before, uh, so much aid, of course, was given to African countries, but to governments uh, and semi-government organizations. Uh, Do you think it's time that uh, organizations like the EU can provide help directly to women organizations Mm. you know, is in, which are playing such an important role in their societies. Thank That's you. That's what I wanted to make.
0: Very good question. Thank you very much indeed. And final question from the lady over there. Yes, thank you very much.
9: And I thank God for this opportunity to be able to learn so much about what is happening in the world as far as women are concerned, and also to get inspiration from other parts of the world. Uh, my name is Mary Ekokole. I work in the Cameroon Embassy, and... Um, My question has to do with uh, equality in terms of time. Uh, The women in my part of the world, and this is what I'm hearing from you, they are the ones They are the caretakers, they are the ones that take care of the children. And uh, there's another slice of the biggest part of the time for rural women is the time that they spend farming. And they're using very primitive tools. These are tools that existed maybe since human beings started living on planet Earth. These women are still using these tools. I'm just throwing out my question to anyone. Maybe someone can help us just find out how we can ease uh, this farming, which is so necessary. Because countries like ours, we depend 70% on agriculture. Mm -hmm. And these women are responsible for bringing almost all the food that we find in our markets If I had a way to just facilitate it, we don't have big parcels of land in which you could bring in tractors. People have individual family land, which is not too much, and so they just need a tool that can make it easier for them. I'm wondering whether in the world of technology, can someone just suggest something that can help to bring relief to these women so it can put more time back in their hands to rest. It's important for every aspect of their lives, even for their health. My mom couldn't complete uh, her uh, literacy classes because she spent all of the time from early morning, 4 o'clock, going to the farm and coming back just in time to be able to cook for her family.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Mary. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, Tanaka-san, I think uh, I'll start with you. Uh, If you could give your comments to some of the questions we've heard. Uh,
5: I want to uh, respond to the women's economic empowerment. Uh, I think it's very important to give the opportunities for women's livelihood uh, recovery, especially after the disaster. And that's why we've been implementing the quick impact projects to recover women's uh, livelihood project after disasters. But uh, we have to be careful that, uh, like we experienced in uh, Sri Lanka, when we provided the microfinance to the women's groups, the many Muslim women uh, did not spend the money for for their own income generation, but the husbands and sons used those loans instead. So uh, when you provide the loans and financial assistance to women, uh, you have to provide the gender awareness training and also gender empowerment uh, trainings as well. You know, otherwise, uh, the money will not be spent properly. So these are the lessons we learn from our experiences. And also regarding the farming and uh, basic agricultural tools, uh, we've been supporting many, many um, agricultural projects in Africa. But uh, most of them are paddy-growing uh, projects. But we've been providing the simple tools uh, and, and the simple push readers and uh, simple uh, techniques so that we can, uh, uh, women can improve their production uh, activities. And, uh, the, and the most recently, we've been supporting the sericultural projects for women as well, uh, which are more market-oriented. But so um, I'm sure that if... Um, we could come in to Cameroon, uh, we can use all of these uh, experience we accumulated in, in other African countries.
0: Right. Thank you very much, san Ula, your final words.
3: Well, there was a couple of, um, of things related to, um, to funding, and I just want to make um, one comment regarding that, or underfunding. It's very clear that um, local uh, women organizations, civil society, and local groups are the ones who get the less support um, although there is enough money out there uh, but they they get the less the, le- the less money um, if we if we take for an example the EU mechanism uh, for providing support to countries like Syria for example, or even any other country in the Middle east, we see that the local organizations uh, have hard time, and very, very few of them actually who were able to access this fund, uh, simply because it's not made for us. It's not made for, the, for, for, uh, for, for, organi- for civil society who comes from, from this region. It's made for INGOs who have uh, long years of experience and who's able to handle uh, big funds. Um, well, I'm not saying that local organisations are not able to handle big funds, but I'm 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 saying that the criteria that they have put for this kind of resources is really almost impossible for for local groups to uh, to to apply for, and that's um, taking one example is that you have you know you're applying for for three four years uh, long uh, 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 project, and then you have to have funding enough over the past uh, over those four years in order to apply for this fund. That's kind of like almo- almost impossible uh, condition to apply in, in, in local organizations because the funding is like one year, one year, and we hardly get, you know, mm-hmm. the two-year funds. So when you ask her for having already funds secured for four years in order to apply for a project, that means you're, you're right. easily excluding us from this. Yeah. So, like, yeah. my, my final thing is that to encourage to have, you know, to, to change this mechanism on different level, whether it's EU, whether it's INGOs, whether it's government, to be able for the local groups to be able to access this this kind of fund without having intermediate, uh, mm. uh, you know, one uh, inside in between, like like NGOs, etc.
0: Right, Dan.
1: Well, thank you. Um, just a couple of points. I mean, on on the, the question from our colleague uh, from Cameroon on, on, on agriculture and, and women there, um, I'm happy if, if anybody wants to hear about it. We have a program with the uh, World Food Programme, which is called Buy, for Wim- Buy From Women, sorry, and it's about leveraging technology to, to, to give women in agriculture um, you know, access to, to, to various advantages, but I, I don't want to take up time on, on that right now. Um, on the issue of local organizations, um, look, there, there is a basic problem. that For the big donors... Um, it's extremely difficult in terms of transaction costs to give money to local organizations, and particularly small local organizations. So there's just a a practical problem there, and we need to find a solution. Um, So within the context of the grand bargain, um, we're working with uh, the Red Cross and Switzerland in the localization work stream, and we're examining um, three models for how you get money uh, to those local organizations in a way that, 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 that works for the donors. Um, we have a, a, a trust fund for local organizations in humanitarian and peace and security called the Global Acceleration Instrument. That's one. Uh, the Red Cross has an excellent tool called the DREF, and I apologize, I can't remember what DREF stands for now. Uh, somebody else maybe remembers, uh, but uh, Monique does maybe.
0: <laughs>
2: we think
1: the D's disaster, which is a, a start. But
0: Emergency fund.
2: Oh. Disaster
1: response, thank you very much, thank you. Which, it's a, which is a wonderful uh, mechanism, so we're looking at that as well. Um, and then also the country pooled funds uh, as a means as no. well. But we have to find a solution. We're working on it in the grand bargain with our partners, um, but until we do that, but, but I just should say there's the whole discussion how do you get to local organisations, but within that, we again have to keep hammering. Local women's organisations mm. as well, because otherwise we know who will get the majority of this money. So, um, lastly, just on the on the issue of economic empowerment, which which uh, you raised, um, I mean, super uh, important. Um, and you know, we we have a program um, in twenty six countries called Leap Leadership Empowerment Access and Participation, which is around empowering uh, women, um, but. I just wanted to flag, it's not just the, 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 um, the, the, the employment opportunities or the cash for work and so on. It has all sorts of other knock-on effects. Um and just to give you one, one example. In the programs that we run in Za'atari in, in, in Jordan, um, the women that are taking advantage of those services for, for income-generating opportunities and livelihoods and trainings and so on, they're reporting a 20% reduction in experience of domestic violence. Just as, just as one, one example of how... I mean, you're absolutely right, this is a key... This unlocks a whole set mm-hmm. of other things for women and their, and their families as well. So we just wanted to reiterate. Couldn't agree more. Thank you.
0: Dan, just just one thing. We yeah. haven't mentioned private sector, and mm-hmm. I know that Istanbul, private businesses were very much part of this grand bargain <coughs> or discussion. So are they mm-hmm. becoming more involved in humanitarian actions? I'm, I'm sorry that we didn't have IKEA yeah. today, but, I mean, that, that's a message as well, isn't it?
1: Yes, I mean, it, we, you know, we, we, have, we definitely want the uh, private sector involvement. I, I have to say... From where I sit, I have not seen a big uh, uptick in that since uh, Istanbul. I don't think we've leveraged it yet, so it's something where we need to do more work. But that's just purely from from where I sit.
0: Okay. Monique, please.
2: Thank you. I think we have touched upon so many things uh, that it's a bit difficult to wrap up. Maybe on the gentleman on on Somalia, just to say, humanitarian aid is not given to uh, governments. It's given to organizations, to Partners, but not to government. Just to, this is the difference between humanitarian aid and development aid. So just just for the, let me uh, make a few comments. And, and uh, well, first of all, I would like to um, to say what humanitarian aid is and is not. Also, because I think we are also talking about many things. Humanitarian aid is not a development tool. Mm-hmm. Is not a uh, solution to conflicts. Humanitarian aid is there when there is no such thing as conflict resolution, and where uh, development aid, to some extent, has not worked, has failed, or has uh, has not provided the results. So there are many issues that you uh, have addressed today that, unfortunately, are not to be fixed by humanitarian aid what we do is to respond to basic needs and i'm not denying the many many needs that you expressed and that. but this is why we work also more and more on what we call the resilience uh, or on the bridging between humanitarian aid and development because many of the things that you've mentioned We cannot address them with humanitarian aid. Humanitarian aid is like, you know, the emergency service in a hospital. You bring patients that are in urgent need uh, to be treated. That's what we do. Then you have to pass to another service for more long-term solutions. And this is what we need to do better together with our development colleagues. That takes me to the disaster risk uh, management. It is fundamental. And the more we can spend on that the more we will reduce the vulnerability to natural disaster, the vulnerability to conflicts, and the capacity for communities and for people individually to get over and to resist uh, this. But, again, the problem is a problem of money. Uh, The more conflicts we have, the more disasters we have, and we have more and more with climate change, and I think our Japanese colleague mentioned that very clearly, the more we would need to work on uh, on disaster risk management. And Cancun is a very good opportunity. We are leading also on the Sendai framework and on on the action plan on that as the Director General for Humanitarian Aid and Civil Protection. But we have to intervene so much in Mm -hmm. repairing or in, in alleviating the suffering, then we are left with little money to address the prevention side. But this is one of the priorities we have in that. Mm. Local actors. I can only uh, echo what Daniel is saying. This is something we would like to do, but it is complicated. It is very complicated because we are intervening, just to give you the, the dimension, in more than 40 countries, probably 40, 50 countries, local actors are how many in each country? So how can we be sure that they are the good ones, that they are reliable? We are using taxpayer money. So we have also, we are accountable for the money we use. So this is something we want to do. We've committed to do it. But it's, it's something that will need time to be implemented. And we work together to see how we can better do that. Finally, I, you know, and I would like to praise these two women then for what they do. And also, I'm older than you, I want you just to say education, education, education. It's only via education that we can bring women to a better position, that we can change the societies, that we can change the, the, the look people have about women, about their role. This is what we've done in our countries. My mother, my grandmother, uh, where, where I am today is the result of the fights of many women before me. This is the fight you're doing today, and this is where you will also one day arrive. You see, we are still far from being uh, equal, but I do believe that uh, education, which is also a priority we have in development, in uh, in, uh, humanitarian aid to promote more. Uh, education process because I believe that it's with the education of women that we will achieve also the cultural change that are needed right. everywhere to make things change and to have one day one world where we will not have to have a women day and we, there will be no discussion about gender because it will not be an issue anymore.
0: Thank mm. you. Thank you, Monique. Also, education for men I think is very important. <laughs> she for he, uh, absolutely. Marcel, your final words. Uh, I will comment
4: on the like supporting local in Somalia we are lucky with the lack of access INGOs NGOs can't enter Syria and we are lucky for that because without this they wouldn't deal with us they kept dealing as implementing partners till they lost access to the ground and this is sad because we are becoming the private sector. The private sector is not interacting with us. We are becoming the private sector. Bigger, larger, north and south, we are becoming. Discrimination in the humanitarian aid work is not only against women. Let's watch ourselves and our behaviors carefully. In the humanitarian summit, in every, let's, let's see how inclusive we are really in the humanitarian sector. So, yeah, it doesn't change anything, but it reflects people look at us as those who are acting. Are, is there enough women? Is there enough people? I met so many people who works in Afghanistan. I never met an Afghani person who worked in Afghanistan. This says a lot about what we are reproducing. We are reproducing bottom-up approach, like up to bottom. We are going to change the world. We're going to change Syria. We get, that's not going to happen. We're going to change Syria. And we are doing it. And having faith in us, and in them in Somalia, and in them in Cameroon, is, the, is the, the, like, the source of it. Do we have enough resources? We do have enough resources, but we are not spreading it enough. We are becoming companies, 60% overhead costs, la, 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 and we are becoming companies. And this is dangerous, and I think this is need questioning. We paid, we are hitting the one million victim right now in Syria, and there is a lot to be learned after that, because we don't want any country in the world to pay such a price again. Mm-hmm. We need to sit and see where we failed, and where we did a good thing. Mm-hmm. The local civil society in Syria is a good thing. Because of the lack of access, and because of the revolution that started in 2011, we're not going to leave. We consider this is our our topic, our cause. If like, the funding stops, I'm a dentist. I will have a clinic in the morning, and I will work in civil society at night. It's not something that is temporary to, to, to us, to people like us. So, yeah, we need to invest in such, to end discrimination, to, like, notice privileges everywhere, especially in humanitarian aid sector, because we don't want to reproduce the problem, to keep reproducing the problem that we reached here for. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Um... I'm not going to wrap up, but I do want to make a point that I think is interesting. It's that we really are living in a paradox. Uh, At the same time, we have women's issues moving up the agenda. We've seen, and Daniel said it, I mean, the movement is more galvanized than ever before, more aware, more ready to act, uh, take to the streets, but also within institutions and organizations. So, yes, it is a moment. It is an important moment for women's uh, activists. Um, But at the same time, our multilateral frameworks, the organizations of liberal order that we relied on for so long, are under pressure. More difficulties to come if uh, if other countries, the United States, for instance, starts withdrawing or starts cutting back, I mean, these are dangers that are out there. There's also, as uh, many have mentioned, problems of money or finance, perhaps not uh, scarce resources, but the distribution of resources. But I think what we've learned now, and I thank you all, really, and, and you for your questions, is that women are not just passive victims or observers of humanitarian crisis of development. They really are becoming more and more empowered. And we've seen two brilliant examples of these two young women from Syria who are doing exactly that, working locally. So women's participation is crucial. It's the key. Otherwise, there is failure. Um, There is a question of local actors, and I think thank you for really pointing that out. I think it's an important message for all of us to take home, to take away. Uh, the, The importance of dealing with women's organizations as well. I mean, it's quite... Uh, stunning and shocking, I have to say, that women's organizations get less funds, though we know they play such a primordial role in leadership and frontline leadership when there are disasters. And it has to be beyond tokenism. I think this is very important, and I think that applies to all uh, sectors of society. Uh, it It is not a question of just doing it for the sake of doing it. And I think, finally, I'd like to end with what Daniel has said. We just need to step up the game. We cannot sit back and say it's been done yet. It obviously hasn't been done yet. So I think, Friends of Europe, along with all of us here, all of you, we're going to keep up the fight, the struggle, and the conversation will continue. So I'm really happy to see all of you here. Thank you for your questions. And first and foremost, thank you to the panelists for coming here from very far away, from very difficult zones, and contributing to this discussion. Please join me in thanking them all.